I feel like doing fundamental research is multifaceted and that you're looking what's happening with the molecules, okay, what's happening with the cells and the tissues, and then what's happening in the organisms. Thanks for tuning in to Biogenesis, where we get to know a biologist, where they came from, and where they're going next. I'm Eva Frederick from Whitehead Institute. And I'm Raleigh McElvery from the MIT Department of Biology. This season, we're talking to grad students who are conducting curiosity-based research with the potential to transform our everyday lives. Today is all about Jade Varanel. She's investigating what goes wrong when errors in genetic code confuse the cells that form facial structures. Down the line, her research could inform treatments for craniofacial disorders. She's not working in a clinic, with patients, or even in a particular organism. Instead, she's analyzing cells in a dish to glean a fundamental understanding of how mutations can disrupt development. My name is Jade Verano. I'm a third-year graduate student in the Kahlo Lab at MIT. So I was born and raised in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Both my parents are classical musicians. That was a big part of my childhood, sitting in the corner of rehearsals and practice sessions. My mom is a pianist and my dad is a orchestra conductor and a clarinetist. I played cello and piano growing up until I was 18. Classical music was kind of the backdrop <laughs> to most of my childhood. For a while, I was really interested in earth science and meteorology and geography. I don't know exactly why those are my first <laughs> interests. I think my first official biology class was my sophomore year of high school. And that was really interesting to me. And unlike previous science courses, I didn't lose interest in biology a couple months after that class had ended. Growing up, being interested in both science and music is a really good balance in terms of just like how you're thinking and what parts of your brain you're using. I don't know if I took anything from music into how I approach science, but I think growing up in high school and middle school, going to orchestra and then going to biology class was a really nice duality that I think helped me in school. With her days of meteorology and geography behind her, Jade was set on pursuing biology when she started at the University of Michigan. Pretty early on, I decided I'd go the biology route, so cellular and molecular biology. University of Michigan is unique because they have such a huge medical campus that they have lots of very specific biology majors, but the vast majority of students there are pre-med. I think there were 115 people in my major, and I know maybe two people who went on to grad school in biology. Jade herself preferred discovery-based research that allowed her to get to know specific cells and their contents rather than individual patients. So my first research experience was in a biophysics lab, um, doing some computer mod modeling of immune system proteins. And then after that, I moved into a Drosophila genetics lab, where I was looking at a specific protein at the neuromuscular junction in Drosophila and how it works and how depletion of that protein affects how the Drosophila function. I was looking at Drosophila larvae crawl across agar plates to see when, if we get rid of this protein, do they crawl slower? And I really, I enjoyed that experience just because it was a longer two-year experience. And I was able to really develop a project there. Ultimately, I realized maybe I was less interested in neurobiology and looking at neurons and maybe more um, molecular-based, cellular-based experiments. So I was happy, especially in the Drosophila lab that I joined, I was able to do some molecular biology as well as some organismal work with flies. But I knew eventually leaving 
undergrad that I was going to be able to tailor my interests a little bit more to what I was interested in based on classes I had taken in undergrad or just general interests I had from papers I had read. It was these general interests that spurred her to apply to a specific type of biology PhD program called an umbrella program. So an umbrella program is a program that everyone in a singular program has interests throughout biology and sometimes into chemistry. Whereas other programs still have their biology programs subdivided into genetics and cell biology and biochemistry. And because I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, I wanted to go to a program that really allowed me time to experiment with what field I want to pursue, as well as a program that was really open to me coming into grad school, not knowing particularly what I wanted to pursue. And so MIT drew me in because it is an umbrella program and they seem very, very accepting of people who come and saying, hey, you know, I'm interested in lots of different things. I'll take this first semester and a half to figure stuff out. And I think MIT is one of the stronger umbrella programs. I also, the size was appealing to me in terms of a decent number of grad students, but the department as a whole is very small, which um, appealed to me as opposed to maybe some of the other very large programs. The small program made it easy for Jade to connect with her colleagues, even outside the lab. There's a great game called Charty Party, which is like Cards Against Humanity, except for with graphs. So they'll give you a graph, and then you have to say what's on the X or Y axis. And so for all of us bio-PhDs, that's a great game for us. Out of the 60-plus labs spanning 10 major research areas, Jade settled on Eliezer Kahlo's group. The lab itself aims to answer a variety of research questions using a multi-tiered experimental approach, which Jade appreciated. It comes back to wanting to do research on multiple different scales. So I like the way the projects in the the Kahlo lab are structured in that there's maybe um, some cellular studies, some molecular biology, some organismal studies, and a singular project can have lots of different aspects. Jade's project is no exception. So my project is looking at diseases of the cranial neural crest cells. So cranial neural crest cells are a group of cells in the developing organism that are multipotent, so they can give rise to many different cell types. So the cranial neural crest can give rise to the bone structures in the face as well as some of the nerve structures in the face. So notably the lower jaw, the bones in the ear, sometimes the palate structure. And um, I'm looking at diseases that result in malformations of the cranial neural crest. The individual disorders themselves are quite rare. That being said, the cranial facial disorders are one of the most common developmental birth defects. So specifically, I'm looking at mandibular facial dystosis with microcephaly, which I just call MFDM because that is a tongue twister. Individuals with this disorder tend to have hearing problems, underform lower jaw, occasionally cleft palate, occasionally um, some mental difficulties, as well as maybe an overall lower cranial structure. There's also similar ones, so there's Bern McEwen syndrome, as well as Nager syndrome. In general, they have very similar symptoms to MFDM. Sometimes they have maybe some finger defects as well as some heart defects. And so it's kind of a very broad family of diseases that all result in this very specific developmental defect. Each stems from random genetic mutations that confuse a type of protein called a splicing factor. After DNA has been transcribed into messenger RNA, splicing factors cut out sections, so what's left can be joined back together. By dictating which sections are removed and which remain, 
Splicing factors allow a single gene to encode multiple different proteins. But random DNA mutations can muck up a splicing protein's ability to splice, which can then lead to irregular craniofacial structures. So we'll have patients with smaller lower jaws, hearing defects because the bones in the ear are not formed properly, sometimes cleft palate. But for whatever reason, the problems with these splicing factors, even though they're present in all the cells in the organism, we really only see defects in the cranial neurocrest cells. So there's something going on in these cranial neurocrest cells that makes them extra sensitive to changes in splicing. Jade's goal is to pinpoint that intermediary step. How do splicing mutations misdirect neural crest cells, and why are the ones in the developing face thrown off so easily? As she delves deeper into these complex molecular processes, it's becoming clearer that a ubiquitous and seemingly omnipotent protein called P53 is to blame. Yeah, P53 is kind of a do-everything factor in the cell. It is mainly a transcription factor. A transcription factor is a protein that binds to DNA and activates the transcription, so the reading of DNA and turning it into RNA of a specific gene. And so P53 is a transcription factor for many, many genes. (laughs) And it's also a tumor suppressor, so in normal cells, its presence stops cells from growing. So we hear about P53 a lot in cancer, in that, you know, in cancer, we have P53 mutated, so it's no longer present as much in the cell, and then the cancer cells can grow out of control. In the case of cancer, there's not enough P53 to curb uncontrolled cell growth, forming tumors. But the cranial neural crest cells that Jade study seem to have the opposite problem. Mutations in splicing proteins increase the amount of P53, and that ultimately kills the cells poised to form facial nerves and bones. Most other cell types can handle P53 activation and just develop normally. These cranial neural crest cells, for whatever reason, can't handle the P53 activation. P53 says, all right, time to shut this down. And the cells undergo apoptosis and die before they can reach like the jaw where they would eventually differentiate into bone structures. And so I'm looking at what makes these cranial neural crest cells so specific to P53. They're so sensitive to P53. In theory, the same thing should be going on in most cell types. P53 should be activated due to splicing problems, but we only see defects in the cranial neural crest. So we're looking to see what makes these cells so sensitive to P53 and how could we maybe make it so they're not as sensitive to P53. To answer this question, she began by looking at all the mRNA in the cranial neural crest cells to understand what goes wrong when a splicing factor is mutated. She found that the proteins that normally prevent P53 from being expressed, called negative regulators, were unable to do their job as effectively. The misplicing events that occur make it so that they can no longer negatively regulate P53. And so because they can't negatively regulate P53, there's more P53 in the cell. And so I found that along with some other papers that were published kind of at the same time, providing that link between splicing and P53, which hadn't previously been known. Next, she wants to find out what happens to cranial neural crest cells before they undergo apoptosis and die from too much P53. This will help her determine why these cells in particular are so sensitive to changes in P53 levels. Different aspects of how these cranial neural crest cells behave make us think that it's not just a straightforward P53 causes apoptosis. We think there's something else going on in there. 
Understanding what goes wrong in these intricate molecular processes could help researchers find a way to write them early in development. Despite the fact that craniofacial disorders are so common, at the moment there are still very few treatment options beyond painful surgeries. The Kala Labs research could help change that. With just cleft palate, there are surgeries involved, but with MFDM and Nature Syndrome, with a bit more complex craniofacial phenotype, I have not seen any big treatment ideas besides just reconstructive surgery, which is expensive and I don't think is a walk in the park at all. So yeah, I'm mainly focused on studying what makes these cranial neural crest cells so sensitive to P53 activation. But if we can understand what makes them sensitive to P53 activation, we can, down the line, hopefully develop therapies um, that allow these cranial neural crest cells to migrate and differentiate properly into these structures so that we can help prevent these developmental disorders, hopefully maybe before they happen or in utero or something like that. I don't think I was planning on doing anything translational when I was coming into grad school. So while the translational aspect is really, really important, obviously, I'm much more drawn to just the fact that you can look at biology on so many levels when you're doing translational research. Thus far, Jade has been probing the properties of cranial neural crest cells in a dish in order to glean a basic understanding of what makes them so sensitive to perturbations. But she's hoping to start studying them inside living organisms soon. And so I'm doing lots of molecular characteristics of what's happening in these cells. So what are the splicing changes that are happening? What are the other changes on a cellular level happening? So lots of qPCR analysis, so looking at gene levels, some Western blots looking at protein levels, a little, a little bit of computational work comparing RNA sequencing of these cells to other published work. So I like how I can look at what the cells are doing kind of on a broader scale as well as, okay, let's look at this specific gene, how is it misspliced? And then while I'm currently not working with any organisms, I like the fact that there's literature out there on these disorders that look into organisms and fish models and mice models for these diseases. And so I like that even if I'm not doing organismal research right now, I can think about it on multiple different levels. She plans to continue leveraging the Callow Lab's multi-tiered approach even after she graduates from MIT, perhaps working in industry. It's a mindset with utility beyond the craniofacial disorders she's currently investigating. It's not just one disorder, it's multiple disorders. Looking at the basic principles of cranial neural crest cell development maybe could give us insight into other diseases, even if they aren't development related. We may not even need to look at a disorder. Maybe it's just like looking at the cranial neural crest cells itself. It's an interesting cell type. We, we have parallels between development and cancer. So coming at it from a basic standpoint that gives us a broader understanding of a cell type or something happening on the molecular level allows us to apply it to eventually, if we want to apply it translationally, multiple different translational aspects and maybe just like a singular disease or a singular type of cancer or a singular drug. And I think starting at the basic level allows us to branch out more. That's it for today. Next episode, you'll hear about a grad student who's probing the parasite that causes toxoplasmosis. That's right, the microscopic organism that's known for lurking in cat poop. Subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes, or find us on our websites at MIT Biology and Whitehead Institute. Thanks for listening.